0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to my podcast series called I've Never Done This Before. I'm your host, Mary Agarwal, the founder and CEO of Nurture. Nurture is a platform that enhances well-being of working parents, caregivers, and their families. I've Never Done This Before is a podcast focused on sharing stories related to the lonely journey of parenting and caregiving, both at work and at home. In this episode of Parent Wellbeing, we're talking about educational therapy. My guest today is Bibi Naz Paryush. Bibi is an educational therapist and consultant specializing in educational assessments, programs, design, and coaching and advocacy for neurodiverse children. Bibi holds a master's in developmental psychology from Columbia University, a bachelor's in neuroscience and education from University of Pittsburgh and a doctorate degree from Loyola Marymount University. Bibi is the founder of The Learning Tree. Bibi, thank you for joining us and welcome to our podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, As I was reading about you and uh, what I really wanted our listeners to, to get from this conversation, you know, I was just fascinated about you know one your background and and the way that you're talking about something that many people don't know and are even aware of and including me I have four kids I mean I have an older kid and a and a teenager but I didn't even know what educational therapy was so if we can jump right in and talk about what is educational therapy and how is it different from tutoring
1: sure um, yeah, so you're, you're definitely not alone in that. Um, most people outside of certain areas don't know what educational therapy is. When I came to it myself, um, I sort of happened upon it by accident. Um, I didn't know what it was. Um, a lot of people who, who work as educational <clears throat> therapists are people who have a background in special ed teaching, um, you know, are ex-leading specialists, et cetera. That was certainly not my background. Um, as you said, I, I came from a kind of a research and neuroscience background, and I was always interested in how learning happens in the brain. Um, and then I took a position um, at a center in Los Angeles. It, it was called the Kelter Center years and years ago. Um, it's not there anymore. But... Um, doing the work that I was doing there, which just you know, happened to be a job that I took, I really saw that what we were doing was the practical application of all the research um, that I had been interested in and had been doing. Um, and at the time, there was really no link between neuroscience and what we understand about brain and learning and how we approach education, especially the education of children who are, um, you know, who, who don't kind of learn in a typical way. Um, and it was just this "aha moment, like you know this this is where it's at. this is what's really important and I, I fell into educational therapy, which is um, a field that has a, a long history. It started in Europe, um, and it came to America from Europe. There's a national organization um, called the Association of Educational Therapists, and um, they you know people work as ets kind of across the world. But most people don't know what an educational therapist is because it's not something that's a big part of the the public school system and the way that we deal with learning differences in public schools. So in public schools, uh, we have what we call special ed teachers. Um, And the job of the special ed teacher to some point is to remediate, but mostly it's it's to help accommodate for the the differences that, that kids have. Um, But in educational therapy, it's, um, I like to think anyway, that it's it's a lot more involved in that you really are approaching the work from a remediation point of view. The belief is in the plasticity of the brain and its ability to change itself. And so you're working um, in these intense and frequent ways in order to build new synapses um, and help children kind of, for lack of a better word, overcome the difficulties that, that they have. So um, it's different than tutoring in that, and I get this question a lot, um, but it's different from tutoring in that it's not about, tutoring is, is still happening at the academic level. So a tutor's job is to really help a, a child who's missed content. Whereas an educational therapist's job is to help the child learn how to learn, learn how they learn best, learn where their gaps are, um, and then how to, how to close, how to remediate them. Um, so the, the kind of example that I like to give parents is, imagine you are in a bike race and you, when one of your tires is out. What a tutor does is hold, help you hold up your bike so that you can continue to ride. But at the end of the day, you're still on a bike um, that doesn't that you know has a deflated tire. The job of an educational therapist is to actually help you take that tire out and put in one that works, so that you can get back on the race, you know, by yourself.
0: Bibi, what you're saying I- is is just beyond me because what I'm hearing you say is that there's a long history of what Mm -hmm. is an educational therapist. It's been around for a long time.
1: We are already
0: missing the point in the public school system, but in general, most people don't know about this. This really makes me kind of, you know, being a mom of four kids, it upsets me because kids have different learning styles and, how come this was not available to me when I was raising my eldest and and nobody ever talks about this. this really, really is upsetting, especially coming from India, where, you know, in India, you are either a, in that education system, either you're an A or you're a failure. That's literally mm-hmm. how it's seen. So. You know, and and I and I read somewhere you you talk a little bit about that injustice and and the social um, yeah. or social justice implication. I mean, what what do you mean by that? Like, this is really interesting to me.
1: Right. So, well, let me first say um, I know I mean that the way that we you know we have to understand that in the public school system. Um, the lens is different. Um, there are many ed- uh, special ed teachers who are absolutely excellent. Um, the amount of education and expertise that special education teachers um, have to have is very high level. However, just because of the way that the system is set up um, and it's based basically on schools have to, you know, the budget for special education, is it's expensive. Um, and so the way that schools approach things is is really about, well, do you have access or not? So IDEA, which is the law that um, allows for, you know, children with learning disabilities to be in schools, et cetera, um, is really based around the idea of access. And that is all that the school system has to ensure that a child is able to access the curriculum. They are not responsible for um, making sure that a child is really living to their potential. And so, you know, the place where educational therapists have a lot more freedom and leeway, of course, is that most ed therapists work, in, work privately. Um, and so, you know, it's a very, they don't have to work within the confines of a public school system. However, that ends up creating other issues because what ends up happening, and this is something that I really saw in my own practice and felt that it was problematic, is that you end up really only being really only helping children whose parents can afford the help. Um, and so that's where the social justice issue comes up for me is, you know, so if you are a child from a family who can afford a private educational therapist, you're going to get this, you know, you're going to get the best of what we know in terms of research and practice and remediation. But if you're not, then you just kind of have to deal with whatever exists. Um, and, and that's, of course, problematic. And then what you said about um, you know, schools, for example, in India or the, the you know, this approach of you're either typical or there's something wrong with you, that also is something that I, in my own kind of practice and advocacy, really try to push against because what we're finding and what neuroscience research is showing and what I have seen many, many times in my own work with children is that. We can't define the way that kids develop and the way that kids are based on the curriculum that we designed at schools hundreds of years ago, and based on a very limited definition of intelligence that kind of came out of this very Eurocentric history um, and very Androcentric history of, of, sort of psychology and intelligence, et cetera. So a lot of the students that I see, for example, the, the two most typical types of, um, you know, disorders, quote unquote, that get referred are ADHD and, um, and, you know, what falls under a reading disorder, typically known as dyslexia. And once you begin to really work closely with kids um, who have these diagnoses, you see that um there's actually they're actually really really precious um children i find in my experience that kids that um deal with adhd are oftentimes the most sensitive kids so they're in the same environment as other people but because of their high level of sensitivity which is a type of intelligence um, they can't quite deal with it the same way Mm -hmm. Um, they're very they're kids that are very Um, attuned to attunement and and attachment um, and, you know, any kind of disruption in that impacts them. On the other hand, you know, kids who um, I have a little guy that I'm working with right now, for example, um, who's just incredibly bright. His vocabulary and language skills are so, so high, but is severely, severely um, impacted in terms of his ability to read which you know we generally think of as an auditory processing issue but he for him it's not just that I mean, he really he's one of these kids that um you know, he's, he'll probably grow up to be like an incredible architect or artist or something he just has this amazing ability to you know, be in, in the three-dimensional world and really has a difficult time with what we require in schools which is work in the two-dimensional world you're always on the page so reading which is obviously not itself an, an intrinsic human ability. It's a learned human ability for a brain like his is very difficult. So, um, you know, that's really the other thing that I, I hope that the practice of educational therapy can do is to you know push for what we call neurodiversity and push for a, a deeper understanding of multiple intelligences and, and you know why kids looking at the way that brains develop as opposed to this is our curriculum and we're going to judge everyone by it and if you don't fit there's something wrong with you uh,
0: it's just fascinating maybe uh, so so for our listeners you know one thing i also want to want you to highlight is you know these are not kids who are because they have a certain um, different type of learning profile doesn't mean that they are not intelligent kids in fact some of them are Mm -hmm. super highly intelligent kids right yeah Uh, which is such a sad thing because the system doesn't recognize how to help these yeah I mean so the the definition
1: of a learning disability is um, that there has to be a gap between your intelligence um, and then you know the skills that are showing that that are enabling you to to show that intelligence and access etc so um, because there has to be that gap um, this is not reflective of intelligence at all so like you said um, oftentimes uh, you know Kids have, are highly, highly gifted, but they have a, a particular, so for example, they might have, they might be dyslexic or they might have dyscalculia or whatever it is, um, or executive function difficulties or ADHD. So it's in no way related to intelligence. However, one of the things that happens is when you are intelligent and you have a lot of strengths, you, you tend to use those strengths to, um, to kind of make up for the areas where you have difficulty and so that can actually end up working to your disadvantage because you're working so hard just to be able to kind of be at the same level um, and also when you are very intelligent you have you know that self-awareness you realize that something doesn't quite fit and you're confused about well why is it that i can do this so well and I can't do these other things well. And that's when it really starts to get to kids and they begin to internalize it um, in a a negative way. Um, But I'll just say um, most of the kids that I work with, maybe not most, but like maybe seventy 60, 70% of the kids that I work with would not even qualify for a um, learning disability in the public school system. Because unfortunately, like I said, you have to be pretty severely impacted um, to even get the diagnosis if you're doing your testing through the public school system or to get access. So, um, you know, I, I talk about the kids that kind of fall in that gray area. Um, and my approach is processing skills based approach. So I'm interested in what are all the processing skills that underlie learning, things like memory and attention auditory processing, visual processing, processing speed, logic, and reasoning. So basically the neurodevelopmental constructs that need to be in place and need to be working in harmony in an efficient way in order for you to show up in the classroom and function well. Um, When those constructs sort of don't work in specific clusters, that's when we say, okay, well, you, you sort of we're going to call this ADHD. We're going to call this dyslexia, whatever it is. Um, but for a lot of kids, they don't necessarily cluster in that way. Um, they don't necessarily get a specific diagnosis, but they're still struggling. And so, a lot of educational therapists, our job is to help the kids that are in that gray area so that they can, so they can function better because they're, they're not necessarily so severely impacted. They're going to get an IEP at school.
0: Which is interesting. I mean, if you're saying that 70% of the kids are wouldn't qualify, I mean, certainly the system needs to look at this and say, you know, this is off balance and something needs to change, which which begs me to think about another question. Um, you know, if it is um if, if it's not accessible to, to kids who, um, who may not be able to afford it. Um, you know, there's resources are so limited. I mean, what can these parents even do for their children?
1: Well, um, <laughs> um, well, you, my, you know, this, this was the question. This was really the, my dissertation <laughs> question. Um, when I was doing my doctor you know how can we shift this it's very difficult to make structural changes in the school system I think probably the most effective thing that we can do is to try to bring the knowledge base um, uh, you know the, the very very basic things are sometimes still missing in in the larger school systems. so things like neuroplasticity kind of like this ability that the, the human brain has to change itself um, that, you know, is, is quite incredible and it's something that it has throughout life. It you know, doesn't just stop after a certain age, um, which, you know, gives us an incredible amount of hope because that means that you can, in fact, help children um, shift, make changes. Um, So I think one of the the biggest things is to just try to bring the knowledge base and the awareness as much as possible to the, to schools. I think most teachers are incredibly well-meaning and want to do right, but they are, they are stuck in in a, so for example, in the, in the, the way that we do um, the way that we deal with if, if there's something going on with a te- with a student in a teacher's classroom right now, that teacher might make the recommendation that there's something. For example, let's say a student is having trouble reading. They'll say, Oh, there's a reading issue. There's something going on here. Then they all get together and they have an SST meeting, and then they evaluate and they're like, Okay, well, let's try A and B and see what happens. And then. They try that and it doesn't quite work because it's not happening at the level that it needs to be happening at. And then they come back together again and they're like, well, that didn't work, let's try this. And so six months or even a full year can oftentimes pass before they even make the recommendation for that student to get evaluated. Um, and so that's an entire academic year that that child just lost you know, with interventions that are, not, um, that are not appropriate, that are, that are not happening at the exact level that they need to be. And this is one of the reasons why assessment is so important. Um, but you know, the school system can't, can't do it that way. And so I think that you know, one thing that I would say to parents is two things I would say to parents. One is if you feel something is going on with your kid, but the feedback that you're getting from school is, it's fine, they'll just get there. You know Everyone develops at a different rate. This happens a lot, especially in private schools. I would say trust your gut instinct and just do at least the screening um, so that you know you can so that you're you're not ending up in third grade and your child can't read. The second thing is if, especially if your child is in a public school, if there's any kind of feedback that comes from the school that says something isn't quite right, immediately get on it yourself. Don't depend. I think what happens with with parents is a lot of times they depend on the educators because they think they're the, they're the specialists in this. They're the experts uh-huh. in this. Um, and educators are experts in curriculum. When, when teachers go to become teachers, they go to learn curriculum. They don't go to learn brain science. They don't go right. to learn you know, how the brain develops. And so um, my recommendation is that if you, that feeling tells you something is off, or if there's any kind of feedback that's telling you, act on it as soon as you can. Because even though the brain is plastic and it can change itself, still the sooner that you catch it, and the sooner you can give um, expert intervention, the easier it will be to remediate.
0: I mean, that's a great, great tip. I mean, most of us, and I know I, um, you know, I was in the same boat. I when I was, you know, if I think about my eldest. Um, I know she needed some help, but by the time I got to helping her, it was years past and I -hmm. kept, you know, going back and forth and I'm, you know, counting on the educators to tell me what I need to do. No one ever mentioned, she's 21, no one ever, ever, I've never heard the word educational therapy in her Mm -hmm. entire, um, you know, school years so it, it's, it's it's interesting what what you're, what I'm hearing you say is, don't just count on the educators, take the matter in your own hands and start doing the assessment so you know So, so let me ask you this like what you know how young are the children that you know things are wrong or things are not quite um, where they need to be, and you should get an educational therapist involved.
1: Well, okay. So I, so educational therapy really happens at that academic level. So most of the kids that I work with are seven or older, occasionally work with six-year-olds because they put children in school as early as five and six, which I disagree with. But um, I do occasionally work with younger kids of that age. However, before that, there are a lot of things that parents can be, first of all, Things like an auditory processing issue, so phonemic awareness, because the underlying um, skill for reading, that's something that a kindergarten teacher could screen for. And I I wish, if if schools would just do this, if they would just screen for phonemic awareness really early on, we would have a a different landscape in terms of reading. Um, and it's a very, it's a very easy screening to do. Um, you know, if kids can't put together and manipulate the sounds of speech, they're going to have difficulty reading. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something that, you know, a lot of schools now are trying to explicitly teach reading through that phonemic awareness piece, but so many schools don't. And for kids who don't just pick pick up on it, um, reading becomes a problem. So there are many, many things. So when you, um, so, for example, a lot of my, um, a lot of my di- uh, referrals come from occupational therapists and speech-language pathologists. So the way that the brain develops sort of happens in layers, one on top of the other. So oftentimes, the child who ha- is having difficulty with certain motor movements, you know, crossing the midline of their body, controlling themselves, handwriting these you know the other systems that i then work with lay on top of that so you know even when your child is much younger if you're seeing things like that or if you're seeing um language development difficulties um you might not go to an educational therapist but uh you you can certainly get them assessed and i think that most people who do assessments work with kids as young as three So um, it is something that you can do. I mean, obviously, you know, you're not going to give a child an ADHD diagnosis at three, but you, you, you know, you can check for the sensory stuff. You can check for the little tweaks. And obviously the earlier you start, the easier it will be. Chances are they are still going to need some help as they get older. Um, but at least you, you've you addressed kind of at the at the lower levels, at the motor level, at the language level when they were younger. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So yeah, I mean, I wish that, I wish that we did a better job of of screening kids when they're younger, but unfortunately, we don't.
0: Wow. Um, so so um, you know, it, it's another question that comes to my mind is you mention, um, well, first of all, there's a lack of education in parents. It's definitely. Um, so so what you know, aside from the school, what else? can parents do? Um, What I'm trying to ask is, you know, you mentioned that these kids may be a little bit more sensitive. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I think about my eldest, you know, again, she's 21. And yeah, you know, I didn't quite understand what that meant. So my ask of her was show up to, you know, you need to get this grade and you need to get, I didn't really understand that she was seeking that sensitivity um, from me as well as a parent. I mean, do you see that? Do you see that there is a disconnect between parents and the child as well? <laughs> yes. In fact,
1: the, oftentimes it's that disconnect that's the, the root of a lot of the stuff. Um, so, you know, it's true, that, it's true that most parents aren't educators, are not necessarily experts in these things. However, I always tell parents, You are the biggest expert on your child. No one knows your child the way that you do. No one has been there since day one the way that you have. Um, And so what I encourage parents to do is don't think of it in terms of behavior. Don't think of it in terms of, you know, what do I need to do to get this kid in line? Um, But instead, try to become attuned to your child in the way that you hope that they would be attuned. Really listen, really try to sit with them, really try to experience things from their point of view. I mean, ultimately, um, can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, ultimately, you know, I think what makes my what I do, I mean, yes, of course, there's remediation and there's techniques and there's this and there's that, there's all of that. But ultimately, what I really do, what makes me successful with a child is that I sit with them and I give them a hundred percent of my attention. I tune into them without judgment mm-hmm. and I let them know that I'm there because I'm interested in whatever it is that they're presenting and every child is different. Um, it, it, there's, you know, there's a, there's a human component to that, to the, to this work. You know, it's, it's why I think it's called educational therapy um, so much of it is that therapeutic work. And Ultimately, that's really based around that relationship. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, parents that we should expect parents to be their child's educational therapist. It's a different relationship. But I do think that in understanding what's going on um, with a child, parents are are have an incredible amount of knowledge to share and know a lot more than they think they know. They just have to sit with it a second. They just have to you know, sit, sit with the problem for a bit. Um, and I think one of the things that oftentimes happens is because that's your child and because you're so worried when you see something is off, it immediately makes you anxious. And then you try to deny it, or you try to like you know, get them to just fix it because you can't deal with that anxiety. Whereas of course, you know, as parents, what we try to do is to hold that anxiety for our child um, and, and, and to have faith that there, it's gonna be okay. Um, and that's what's oftentimes missing. And unfortunately also, especially when these things have a family component, like a, a, you know, genetic component, when parents see their children struggle, it's a reminder of their own unattended struggles as children, mm-hmm. which sends them even further into sort of denial and, and or anger or fix it, you know, that kind of mode. Um, and of course, children are really meant to be a mirror. I mean, that's, that's at least that's why I think we have children, you know, they, they come in as an opportunity to allow us to heal the parts of ourselves that we didn't even know needed healing. And mm-hmm. so giving that attention and addressing it, um, and, and that's one of the reasons why when I work, I work with the entire family because it's never isolated in the child, right? It's an entire family system that is being impacted by this and that is impacting this. Um, and it's, you know, it's that's why it's so important for the whole family to kind of understand how, what role is this playing? What is this telling us? What do we need to do here? Um, and, you know, it's, Yes, of course, there are things like remediation that we need to work on, but all of these things, if if there's that emotional connection and attunement, I mean, everything in the brain gets processed, gets mediated through emotion, and that's what the neuroscience research is really showing us. Um, And so when we have that part, it makes everything else a lot easier. When we don't have that part where there's this connection and there isn't emotional attunement it makes everything else so much harder
0: you know maybe what you're saying makes so much sense and i you know i've, I've spent enough time feeling guilty about not being able to emotionally connect with my with my eldest daughter especially um but yeah, you know, I mean, it is a common theme. As you get to start talking to parents, you hear that they were also not available, and it's just, it's just not that not that we didn't want to. It's just that we didn't have the proper education or, well, or awareness. Uh,
1: well, and and I really discourage guilt. Yeah, <laughs> because because the most likely the reason that you weren't able to be attuned is because you, no one attuned to you, right? Right. You are having the same struggles. Um, and so it, it sort of becomes a cycle. Um, and oftentimes, you know, with the first kid, I mean, it's not like children come with a, with a manual. Um, you're kind of figuring your way out and you can't blame yourself for not knowing you don't know what you don't know, you know, you're, you're doing your best. Um, but when things like that happen, it's still always possible to go back and say, you know what, I, I didn't know this when you were younger. This is what was going on. Now I know. You, you can tune in at any time. Um, it's not like, you know, if you miss the window, it's over. Um, so do not feel guilty because, because how can you know what you don't know?
0: No, I, I really appreciate that. And, and, and thank you for saying that because, you know, as parents, it, it, guilt is just part of whether, whatever anybody says, but it is who we are. We are made of guilt. But, you know, sure. since I started Nurture, what, what I have learned from interviewing many, many, many specialists, that they too have been struggling with their children. They're better specialists to another kid then to their own kid. And it's, it's really gave, given me an insight into the window of this parent and child relationship, which the dynamic, you know, I, I really appreciate what you're saying because this educates me to change that dynamic. This educates me to take a step back and become that advocate for my child, not just say I'm an advocate, but truly be there to listen. And, and it's okay. At the end of the day, this child is going to do what they're good at. And they may not be good at everything else, just like we are, all of us are not.
1: Right. And let me also add this. Um, In my, you know, I've been in practice for over 12 years. In the entire time that I've been in practice, I've never met a parent who didn't want to do right by their kid. So parents might not know better. They might miss it. They might not, you know, all, but they want to do right by their kid. And that's what really matters because kids will pick up on that. And and that's, you know, that, that love, as long as they know that you want to do right, that's all that really matters. You don't have to actually get it right. Um, so I hope that that also helps to, to kids, kids know, I mean, they know, okay, you, you don't really, you're not an educational expert, but I know that you're really concerned about me. I know that you're really worried about me. And that you know, that guilt that you say um, is not wasted. Kids pick up on that. They know that they're loved. They know that they're cared for. They know that somebody feels guilty over them, and that's really important.
0: That's – thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, so let me ask you an important question. Prior to, uh, you know, finding you um, and learning about what your – your the, how you um, teach children, um, I did – hear about a couple of other educational therapists and there was a huge difference between who you are, how you teach, your uh, methods versus the general. I mean, there were a lot of educational therapists that, you know, I had uh, had spoken with who didn't have as clear of a guidance as, as you did. I mean, so what should parents um, look for when they're interviewing an educational therapist and and, and of course, I, no. I'd love for you to to talk a little bit about your your own company and how they can find you as well. So in case people want to reach you,
1: sure. So you know, this is really a, a I would say a shortcoming of the field and something that um, I think they're really trying hard to 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 fix. Um, As of now, because there's no kind of uh, state or national licensing procedure, there are a lot of people out there who call themselves educational therapists who are actually not trained educational therapists. They might be a tutor who had a case of a student who had ADHD or something, and now they're calling themselves that. So that's one issue, is you, you need to be able to sift through that. And one way to do that um, when you're looking for someone is to maybe go through the AET website, um, you know, and and kind of pick someone who's associated with them. It doesn't mean that, you know, it, it doesn't mean that if someone that hasn't gone through the AET process, they're not they're not going to be effective in working with your kid, But that's certainly one way to, to look and, and check. Um, the, you know, and then after that, it's really like anything else. I mean, you know, if you, when you go to pick a therapist, when you go to p- pick a doctor, when you go to pick anyone, you know, the people are gonna be only as good as the people are. So I do um, recommend doing some research when you are going to pick someone. Um, The number one thing that I think really matters is that you feel comfortable with the person. I mean, this is someone that you're going to be entrusting your child to. So use your instincts. You have to be comfortable and your child has to be comfortable. There has to be a rapport and a relationship. So that's number one. The other thing is you want to make sure that they you know, that they believe in remediation. Um, they are not going to just become like um, kind of like an enabler, right? So the, the point is that they have a specific, pro, um, a specific methodology that they're going to use in order to help remediate the issue. Um, and that remediation, you know, what you can check for is the brain rebuild new synapses when something is happening frequently and intensely. So for example, if you're doing reading remediation and you know, they say, oh, well come in one session every other week or something, that's not gonna work. It has to be a daily thing, it has to be intense, and it has to be frequent. Um, so you can use some of the, you know, kind of the, the principles of of um, brain plasticity to help you in, in making your choice. Um, but certainly, you know, it, 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 everyone comes at it a, a little bit of a different way. I really recommend getting, um, you know, a, a recommendation or referral by people that you trust. Um, but it, it's difficult. There's no way. There's no way to just. You. It's normal to go through a few people before you find the right fit.
0: Is mm-hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and how can people reach then, you if if they wanted to reach you directly?
1: Sure. Um, well, the easiest way is to just go on my website. There's information about kind of my approach, and then also my contact info. Um, and my website is pretty easy. It's laeducationaltherapy.com.
0: That's beautiful. So that's laeducationaltherapy.com. Um, right. And and before we uh, we say goodbye, I wanted to ask you. You know, is there a story? Um, know, talking about your own story, which uh, of I've never done this before, whether it was personal or, you know, in a professional manner when you met a child and you felt like, oh my gosh, I I, I have all this background yet. I don't know how to, how to help this child. Uh, Would you, would you (laughs) mind sharing?
1: Sure. Um, Well, you know, I will say this with every student that I sit with, I kind of take that beginner's mind. I always take that, I've never done this before um, attitude because every child is uniquely, that's, that's sort of the other thing that I've learned in my experiences. Yes, you know there, there are certain trends that you see, okay, well, this is what a reading disability looks like, but every child comes to it differently. Every child approaches it differently and every child has their own specific profile. So you know, I, I, one of the reasons that I, I love the name of your um, your podcast is because I think there's incredible power in that. I've never done this before, um, so I, I do try to take that. And you know I'll I'll say I still to this day I, I come across children who present things that to me are completely new. Um, but I look at that as I look at that as something really exciting. I look at that as as an opportunity to learn with that child um, and to learn from that child uh, you know i don't want to put i don't want <laughs> to put your daughter kind of on the on the spot but certainly um, you know she's she, i mean she's just kind of an incredible case of a kid who has these immense immense strengths um, but can't quite communicate them so they're there, and, and but if you have access to the real her, you have access to them, but she doesn't necessarily communicate them. And, and to help her to do that becomes part of the therapy. And this is, again, one of the reasons why it's difficult sometimes. Um, it's so individualized. Every child is different, every case is different. It's One of the reasons why we can't do it in the school system because it, it requires that individual attention. Um, but generally speaking, I think it's, it's always good to take that beginner's mind um, to, to any case that you take.
0: I absolutely love this because, I, I mean, I think I've asked you probably 10 times already, you know, I've never done this before. How do I do it, BB? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you always say, well, you know what, let's go back to the drawing board, right? So I, I absolutely right. love this. Um, it's been a pleasure, Bibi, uh, you know, to, to learn about not only your background and your approach to learning both from the child's perspective, the educator's perspective, and also the parent's perspective. I, I mean, thank you so much for really going in, in detail about explaining all of these different scenarios and also giving us insights. So thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Of course, my pleasure.
0: Um, so, and thank you to all of you for listening to our podcast. And I hope this conversation was very helpful to you as it was to me. Um, if you like the conversation, please do share this link with others, especially those who might be in the need of some help. And if you like to share your own stories, please submit it on our website at www.nurturenurxur.com. I'm looking forward to having you tune in next time. Until then you